morning. You guys can sit next to each other there. Yes, that's fine. Pick which of those seats you like better there. How'd you sleep? Amazing. So beautiful. Right? Yeah, yeah. That spot is fucking perfect. It is. It's so cozy and comfortable. Like the sounds of nature or like my lullabies, you know? I always feel this stuff. But um, no, it's my nerve. I don't know if you're there. lower seat of the two, I think. They're adjustable. No, that one is not really adjustable. It won't stay up. Oh. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> you're so good. How are you so good at piano? It's all I do all day long. I do this podcast and I play the piano. <laughs> Goodbye. We had a whole episode about this mug. So you guys are going to have to share that microphone. It's not the same photo, is it? It's different. Yeah, it's the same photo. It is. Same photo. Yeah. yeah. It's on a different medium. The other one's printed on metal, and this one's printed on, uh, on uh, watercolor paper. Huh. Can you guys get up close to the microphone? And scoot your chair up to it so that you're, like, as much as possible making out with the mic. Nah. Let me hear you. Testing, Talk. testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, Great. hello, but, hello. Uh, amazing. Oh, but how? Yeah. Oh, but how? Okay, let's see. I can make that like even louder. Like How's that? Hold on. Okay, <laughs> we're, totally, on we're totally sharing the coronavirus here. But um, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> <sighs> well, it's okay. We're. I think we're. We, I think we're. I think we are. You're already corona connected, probably just by virtue of being in the hot tub yesterday. Okay, I'm gonna stop recording and start again. <laughs> for, li for liability reasons. I recorded all of that. It was kind of fun. I think it was a good intro, but we'll stop it just in case. You do that thing that you know dark filmmakers do, where they sometimes I leave the camera rolling. Yeah, you leave yeah. the camera rolling. Yeah, no, no tricks. He knows all the tricks. Mm. Yeah, in fact, mm. I'm going to keep recording. Mm. I can always start it a little later if I need to. And is the, the mic sensitive for both sides, or this side or that side? It's most sensitive on the side that's facing Patrick right now. Okay. Yeah, that's the best. There you go. We haven't worked out our... With all this technology, I still don't have it worked out for the third person yet, both in terms of... Uh, it's been uh, fine, though, right? I mean... Tell us, dear listener, has it been fine? Or are you still struggling with audio levels being lower and higher? Please. Um, we're working on it. We're working on it. Uh, Chris Ryan told me that I should use a compressor after we record. Like, you can put on a... Uh, an equalizer, basically, a volume. Yeah. I think that's coming up for us. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> when Good we get morning. our first grant. Yes. Patrick, now you're far away from the mic, though. I think you need to talk more into it as well. I'm fine. Okay, okay, fine. People know what they need. We have they a would, guest today. That's an exciting to thing. Turn it up. <laughs> Having a guest is what we want more often. Everybody loves guests, including us. But we're being out here in the middle of nowhere... Um, for those of you who don't know, we're like two miles up a dirt road in the middle of Joshua Tree. And uh, we do have a frequent, given where we are, there's a frequent number of uh, interesting people who somehow show up. And uh, you most of all, Lucy. 
Mm. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Mm. Thank you. Fellow documentary filmmaker. We met in Venice several years ago. Uh, and then now we have this coincidental friend in common. How'd you guys meet in just random LA social scene? Lucy, do you remember? Who, who brought you over to my house? It's a good question. I don't remember. But it was a fun night. There were several people at my house and you were one of them. But we also had many other friends in common. Yeah. And there were there was the topic of your new film involved, I think, too. Psychedelics. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Always, uh, always uh, thinking about and uh, researching psychedelics. That's right. That's yeah, why don't me. we start now and go backwards? Or do you want to start at the beginning and tell us how, how you became a documentary filmmaker? Or do you want to start right away with what you're doing right now, this second? Like, how did you end up here? And where are we? I love you driving here. It's great. You're directing. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm your subject here, which I is help, a though. fun change. <laughs> I need help. I, I usually wake up very alert. But last night I went to bed at like 8 o'clock. And so I woke up at like 1 a.m., which is too early. And then I like kind of pottered about for a few hours and then I fell back asleep and fell and woke up kind of dazed as if it was the middle of the night. So forgive me. There's an argument that people um, used to do that, that the two sleeps is the way to go. What does Patrick, the neuroscience, people say about I, people that? People think I know like cultural history just because I know some things about like the molecular biology of a neuron. I have no idea. No. I'm yeah. always curious about the two sleeps theory. Me too. I do like it. I like it. We've talked about it once before, actually. Uh, that, that 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 middle of the night time in the time before cell phones was very special. Um, it was supposed to be a time for intimacy, for meditation, for you know, very a, a moment that you're away from the hustle and bustle of the world. And so it actually does make sense that we would have this little kind of hour in the middle of the night. But now it's just spent like doom scrolling Twitter, so it's not so. Uh, valuable anymore and how glorious must it have been to be able to like actually go outside and look up and have there's like a, a rating scale now about the level of light pollution in the world and if you look i think it's one the definition the unit that they use to define the amount of light and pollution is what did the sky look like 400 years ago and that's one right and then mm -hmm. it goes up like manhattan is uh, you know just above manhattan or tokyo is an eight or a nine and you can find there's only a tiny few spots in all of north america that are still ones is Death Valley one of them? People, I wonder. I don't know. There's a there's a map online. I think it's I, I want to call it the Dunbar, but it's probably not the Dunbar. Um, but um, but like, how lovely would it have been to be like in the halfway through that middle sleep when you wake up in that kind of intermission to look up and be at the one, right? You're always there 400 years ago because you're that's when you live. Well, I think everything showed up as more wondrous. I think that it's not a coincidence. It's not, it's not just because we know so much, because I think in, in hundreds of years, we'll look back and think that we, knew, we know we still knew nothing about the universe. But it's, there's something about the way we behold nature, which was, I, I imagine, more in a state of reverence and awe. And I felt it sometimes when I go to Iceland or even like in Montana or something. And you can under, you can put yourself in the place of believing in in gods or in spirits and stuff like that. So I think this ties into also what you're researching a bit. Like yeah, connected to connectedness with nature is um, a metric that that shifts considerably when you take psychedelic um, medicine, psychedelic substances um but I, I feel that still but i feel that the great tragedy of our life is that we're disconnected from nature right that we're deracinated that um that everything in modern life contrives to um, mediate your relationship with nature and um, make you forget that actually you're happier when you are um in that simpler connected state and when you're talking about light pollution i was just thinking that you're out here in the desert and you have the difference between the full moon and the no moon and the moonrise and the stars and you're so um the light pollution drowns all that out and it's so interfering of your circadian rhythm and your everything in your body and we're just so disconnected from that and um also there get is a false sense of control i think when you look around and see man-made things they're easier to understand and control 
Whereas I, I am lucky here that even though we're only two hours from LA, I can go on a short walk and be surrounded by nothing man-made and therefore be in a state of like less understanding and less control. And I think that's a, to, to kind of abandon that control puts you in a, in a, uh, in a different posture towards yourself and towards the world, I think. And do you think with just like a bleary glimpse of the sky or the light outside, you can tell what time of day it is? Like, so it's, I yeah. guess to your point that you have just more, you're sampling more data about the actual like change over the course of the day, right? With with the light here and you're actually getting an accurate reflection. So I actually have, so this is interesting. I have, um, uh, well, you guys can determine if it is. Uh, uh, so I had trouble sleeping for years uh, when I just for years and years. And so I used to have these little white noise machines and the white noise machine that I have um, has a bird setting, like a forest setting. And someone commented after I moved here, their, their comment was like, you need to turn that off like right now. And I was like, I was very confused because to me, it was just background noise that like helped me sleep and was just kind of like existed in the uniform, like na like digital nature, you know, soundscape. And her reasoning, which I think is extremely sound, is they're chirping at the wrong time. Like, this is not the time of day that birds are supposed to be chirping. It's unnatural. And I had never thought about the unnaturalness of my digital birds chirping in the background to help me go to sleep. And I think that's a really interesting point that you can, you can use a lot of these sensory cues to actually tell time. And you're noticing. The brain is noticing, right? And so that, like, the more you art or like kind of artificially introduce all the kinds of sounds and sights and light, et cetera, uh, you're gonna you're gonna be disconnected from the kind of like rhythms. So I bet you could. You've been out here four years or something. I bet you could with just a small glimpse tell exactly what time of day it is. Yeah, and if you think about the, you know the stars, like the relationship of like the ancient Phoenician navigators, what rapport they had when they looked at the stars, it told them where they are, right, and it told them where to go. Whereas we have none of that now. We just look up and we might have an aesthetic experience, right? Oh, they're so pretty now that there's no light pollution. But it's still an impoverished kind of relationship, I think, that we have um, because of technology. Now we just look at our GPS to tell us where to go. So we were talking last night with um, a chef who had said that the Japanese like dietary requirement, you know, the, the guideline for their food pyramid was like just eat 20 different plants a day. Do you feel like that's a way to get back like racinate i love that well i always uh eat a lot of vegetable variety so i seem to have um intuited i feel like in some level i have a japanese um uh sympathy or something i feel like japanese culture when i went there i had a um recognition with for example their cherry blossom obsession which i hadn't read about and i had personally developed my own as a teenager and then i went to japan age 22 and um was surprised to find that this whole culture um venerated cherry blossom moment and i think there's a lot about japanese culture that i happen to resonate with and i think that the variety of vegetables um uh, approach is actually how I eat so mm. and then can you tell the story about that dinner that you had that was about the now or the present or the moment uh it's a long anecdote though and it's, it's a beautiful anecdote about a, an amazing Japanese meal with a seventh generation tempura master and his wife in this incredible gorgeous tatami mat um wooden house restaurant um in Tokyo that my first love took me to lunch at and it was just exquisite meal um, and all the ingredients you couldn't translate because they were so seasonal. There would be a special fern that only grew that week, and nobody could, these were words you couldn't translate because they were so ephemeral and specific. Um, and at, at the time, not eating fish, I was trying to struggle to establish my vegetarian diet on these people, and it was just the wrong framework and we couldn't even figure out translation even though we had two perfectly bilingual people there because the the, the foodstuffs were so um so specific and it was it was so beautiful and i sort of abandoned my vegetarian principles for once um in my life and it was a stunning experience although i didn't sleep for a couple of weeks afterwards because i was so unused to eating the stuff it was really strange but it was beautiful experience now japanese culture is a lot to teach us and i think that their um 
I've had some fantastic. Have you ever? Have, I don't know. Have, can you either of you relate? I've had goosebumpy moments in Japanese gardens and the spirits and the Shinto. I've been filming in. I've I've filmed a bit in Japan, um, not just about cherry blossoms, which I made a film about, but another um, film about fermentation, which uh, happened to be a, a commercial for Kikoman. But actually, I like I actually like to think was it played on uh, some cooking channel and people really enjoyed it and it won some film festivals that I didn't even submit it to, which surprised me because it was a thirty minute long Kikoman commercial. But it was really we really poured a lot of love into it and it was actually really an an a, 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 a earnest. Um, inquiry into the nature of fermentation and Japanese culture and learning about fermentation was actually fascinating and one of those pieces of branded content that actually completely transcends its brief um, and didn't mention uh, Kikoman uh, at all. But, um, uh, but filming in these temples, sort of you'd, you'd notice that the, the wind would ruffle just so and the butterflies would show up and there was just this incredible kind of life in the garden that really you felt the spirits the shinto spirits you felt that the with all the japanese um focus on nature and the spirits of the place and the animism somehow i felt that and that's a um advanced you know extremely packed crammed over constructed society right it's this very packed island full of um artifice and construction and yet th that culture retains that really um beautiful i think um relationship with nature so i find that inspiring well, I've of, i often think about the fact that we have these two um biological imperatives like for food and sex and we're very lucky as a species that they are not only pleasurable where they could be very much the opposite i mean if you think of other species where like you know the one person that one person one you know one of the uh, sexes is killed or it's like violent or it's you know the spikes on the penis of the cat or the or think about how boring it could be that like you know like an animal that only eats one thing or or where eating involves a lot of violence and uncertainty we have this so we have not only an intrinsic pleasure with these biological imperatives but then we have this added beauty which is the that it's a their domains rich for meaning right and we've we've created these like rituals around both that allow it to be a place where we discover not just the meaning of the imperative which is that you know we need to survive to eat or we need to like procreate but there's there's like these layers and those layers are real i think they're they're, they're places where actual significance happens I see it a little differently, though. I see as humans as um, meaning-making machines. I mean, sort of of all the creatures, with the creatures um, obsessed with complex symbolic activity who will kill for an idea. No other animal is gonna, you know, I commit an act of terrorism or or um, so forth. And and so we'll find the meaning and the poetry and build and innovate and create around everything that we do and of course because food and sex are important to us there's going to be a tremendous amount of meaning that we're going to want to make around that i i'd posit that you're a victim of this contemporary phenomenon of thinking that it all comes from us whereas you know just like i said if everything's man-made around you that you think man has control over everything so you might think that it's us making the meaning because you're used to a world where we create things but i think if we lived in a state of wonder and openness to nature we would maybe find the meaning is out there i think but the meaning is out there but we know the meaning is out there but i think our default mode network is if it's that because we have a neuroscientist here and i think the jury's out but the the idea i'm sort of interested in or it, maybe it's default mode network counterfactual thinking that is so um, much bigger in us compared to um, other apes, right, or other mammals behind that. We've, we have specialized parts of our brain and we obviously behave differently than other mammals. And that really you can think of as really the meaning making parts that we're really obsessed with innovating and ideas and I did this I did that I want to do this I want to do that what about this what about that we're constantly so creative and, and I think that that has blinded us yes perhaps in many ways in our culture we've become so blind and we think that we're the only 
thing that is, is meaning or agency or, you know, we create our gods and totally don't see the trees and the understand the nature of reality at all. Um, I agree that, that we are that we, we are meeting I, that, that we are the creatures that for whom meaning even uh, exists, right? I don't know if there's you know meaning the, a more or less meaningful life for a dog. Um, and yet I'd like to think I'd like to accept that there's a, we're near, next to a military base here, but this has never happened before. Probably the fires. Fire. The All the fire? show of strength from the president. No, that's that's <laughs> an osprey, no? I mean, it sounds... That's a serious machine in the air yeah, there. Yeah, it's the wrong time of day, yeah. I think, for that to be chirping. Uh, but anyway, I th I'm wondering if there's a there's a way of, of, of accepting that, that meaning only exists for humans and yet not believe that it's us making the meaning. So, like, it seems like the meaning emerges in the world if we think about it the right way. As if there's a category that only we kind of see or perceive. Exactly. Right. So like it's not us making it, it's just us being exclusive perceivers of the thing. Yeah. So so um, <clears throat> in, I think th this is definitely true in mice and then I think generalizes also to primates that, um, so t you know, you're saying the two biological imperatives, food and sex, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at the actual wiring of uh, the olfactory, kind of neurons involved in like like the sensory input from smell. The question being, uh, which of the stimuli directly cause reflexive behavior? So basically skip all processing and go straight to behavioral output. And there's only two. And you got one right, and one of them is not food though. So that's the clue to which one is right. Um, it's, it's defensive behaviors. So it's defense and sex. It's running, it's fear and sex, not food and sex. So food gets at least processed for a few milliseconds. Food is be can be like have a valence and can have a like a, a kind of approach avoidance. Do I want it now? Do I not? It can be regulated. But fear and sex are things that are completely unregulated. Like they just go straight to innate output. They just skip. They skip the brain's entirety of like all of the cognition and just go straight to like we know what to do. We approach or we avoid. We run away or we run towards. And so like there seems to be to me then categories of things categories of inputs categories of stimuli that are un like outside of meaning like they happen too quickly for meaning to kind of intrude and i and i wondered like the degree to which we either have co-opted or made artificial certain kinds of meaning uh, but but it i don't know i think we i think i, I i'm more on lucy's side that i think we're 100 percent the meaning makers yeah uh, I think that that nothing out there, we we know nothing out there. We know nothing about what's out there except the version of how we think we should behave according to it, and that's just it. I want to talk more about Lucy. <laughs> Where do you come from? What? How did you get into documentary filmmaking? Tell us a bit about yourself, please. There's no quick answer. I think um, there's different ways to perhaps answer it though and maybe more interesting one than the autobiography is to think why am I interested what what part of me was meaning making around it like why that of all things because I am someone that's um profoundly and problematically interested in absolutely everything it's really tough to bore me and find something that I'm not just fantastically curious and excited about and could devote a lifetime to um tinkering with and mastering and playing with and making meaning around um, and I think that the, for me the opportunity of my lifetime was that there are some technologies that came up that um, really opened up a new way of us looking at life and understanding our lifetimes and the world around us the the opportunity to use um, non-linear editing so these avids and now um, 
uh, all kinds of other software. But the revolution in, in sort of my lifetime was uh, non-linear editing so that you didn't have to like chop little pieces of cellophane with the guillotine and tape them back together. Um, and if you wanted to find one frame, I mean, it's just this incredibly laborious um, job involving a mountain. I mean, millions of feet, miles literally of of stinky, dusty, allergenic, painful when you cut yourself with it. Imagine like so paper cuts. Yeah. It was so hard. Um, and um, that that stuff um, to manipulate the reality, you know, the images to make a story in that medium used to be so hard with the editing, and then in lifetime, lifetime suddenly you had this like um, fantastic, you know, um, revolution where you could just compare alternate cuts and make you know different stories out of the material. So you could shoot a whole bunch of crap and sort it out later. Which, when you're trying to sort of document the mud of real life and shine up some actual story that's watchable back, um, that whole post-production process and making real life interesting, you know, I think was it, um, uh, um, what's his name, who said that the film was life with the um, uh, boring parts cut out, Goddard, I think, said that. But like life, when you're actually dealing with documentary and, and, and you're actually, the movie is life, you know, you've really got to do a lot of cutting. So I think that was a revolution. And then also these affordable um, cameras. So you didn't have a, need to have a script. You could just shoot a bunch of stuff and figure it out. And, um, and also grab the means of production. You didn't need to, as a girl, you know, it's so tough to raise money. And I never had the kind of confidence of the money rate fundraising part of it. But you can kind of start somewhere and build from there. Also really suited me. Um, and the profound sort of observational quality of it, which I find really interesting, rather than talking about control, rather than sort of inflicting uh, um, script and my sort of, which, which I kind of like screenwriting too, that's fun and you can actually make things exciting happen when you have a script. But the idea of actually letting life happen and... Um, uh, just observing so closely that you notice the narratives unfolding of actual life is for me ultimately more compelling and makes me look at um, scripts and TV and film now as kind of a bunch of people like in silly costumes and sets I just look at the kind of budget line items of and sort of make believing according to some screenwriters often kind of limited idea of w stories that I don't really want to know about so well, it's, I a, it's kind of like exactly what we we're talking about you're looking for meaning in the world and they're trying to create it from scratch like um, I was very influenced by Ziga Vertov and the kind of Russians in the 20s they were saying uh, Eisenstein and all these guys were saying that uh, most filmmaking, the way it was, as particular as it was being done by Americans, was bo borrowing from other art forms. It was like just like copying literature or theater, and therefore it wasn't getting to the essence of what the art was. And the art really was in finding real life imagery and then um, editing. Editing was the one thing that exists only in film and that we shouldn't be like using editing in this limited way to just tell a linear story either. And um, and I, I remember hearing that Ziga Vertov had a train that he would go around Russia and just like be being catching life and then and then creating these masterpieces that make, you know, made like mm -hmm. MTV music videos from 70 years later seem kind of the uh, amateurish by comparison in terms of how much experimentation they did and how fast their cutting was and everything like this and actually there i think the editing they were doing is just as non-linear as we got to the computer it was linear when we went to video and then we went back in a way to the uh non-linearity of film when the digital uh, uh systems came out mm -hmm. and i was equally excited at that about the same time as i imagine you were getting started and i ended up buying a school bus inspired by ziga Vertov, and we um put like three digital video editing systems inside this bus. And uh, then there was a quote of Jean Cocteau 
that we wrote on the side of the bus that was film will only become art when its materials are as inexpensive as pencil and paper. Exactly. Oh, so we're the same school. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I loved um, Ziga Vertov and used to go to anthology film archives when I was living in New York, going to NYU graduate film school and um, watch all his films and read Eisenstein and the the editing of the Potemkin steps and or the, the Odessa steps, right? Yeah. And all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That was my inspiration. And those city symphonies is a, is a genre which I um, love. And Berlin, Symphony of a City, and also there was one... Exactly. The Man with the Movie Camera. Man with the I Movie Camera was tremendous. Growing up in London, there was a museum called the Museum of the Moving Image, which I was obsessed with and used to go the whole time. And they had a um, recreation, actually, of the of that train. And some, all kinds of fun stuff in there. And somehow it, I was the only person that loved it. And they um, got rid of it. And, and afterwards, I always bugged the people because it was part of the... Um, British Film Theatre, National Film Theatre, kind of British Film Institute, kind of government film sort of treasure and funding body. And they all said, oh, no one ever went. I thought, my God, if 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 I went so much. <laughs> it's true that I was sort of the only person in there when I used to go, but really, I, there was no one else interested. I thought it was just a tremendous place for all the reasons that you've mentioned. So I think that's a more interesting you know, way to think about why I'm a documentary filmmaker, because I think it's the most interesting kind of unfolding edge of culture in my lifetime. And I wonder now if that's changing and whether I still want to do it or whether I'm just still committed to the same path, because the world keeps um, unfolding um, and maybe there are more interesting edges of culture to um, be pushing and exploring. But for me, um, the sort of properties and and when you can telescope time you know for example growing up a film that really inspired me was hoop dreams because you could see life compressed you could kind of glimpse the way that um uh fate and life and moments acted you know you could see the kind of forces that shaped life when you telescope years of someone's life um and compress them and then it's sort of a microscope or a telescope, but for human lives, documentary filmmaking. It's an instrument to really peer into, um, in a new way, understand um, our lives in a, in a new way. And um, so for me, it's it's been a way of exploring the world around me. And I also think it's a bit like French cooking uh, editing because you have to you put all these ingredients in the pot and then you have to just keep boiling it and boiling it and it just keeps getting smaller and smaller until you get to this like really flavorful essence, which might be like a tiny percentage of what you've put into it. And so what about, you made a VR film, right? About, or a 360 film? About I made a few VR films, few. yeah. Um, so then how does that relate to the um, the like, slice of life that you're capturing in terms of telescoping and editing and this nonlinear editing because you're you lose a bit of control when you're giving like an experiential um, uh, um, option to the viewer about where to look right people talk about that i think people overestimate that i think people um think that you don't direct vr because people have the agency to look around in a headset and they can look behind them and see the bunny rabbit or they can look in front of them and see the Joshua Tree, but actually, if you are watching a movie, you can sort of tune into the dialogue, or you can tune into the color of the dress. Or I think people are always, um, oh, wait, you're nodding. You've had this argument before. No, I can no, tell. I no, with I, oh, yeah, okay. I also agree. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying it's a it's a matter of degree, not kind. Yeah. That that you always the viewer has always had attentional control. Yeah. Always. So, yeah. So, but but it doesn't. It's just a larger canvas. But but where in the non-linearity does that matter? Where in the telescoping of time does it matter? Because I feel like that that kind of thing in particular is much more present focused. Well, it's an, a different um, it's a different instrument, right? It's a different medium. So for me, the kinds of VR experiences I've done have been live action. So you've um, sort of had a three sixty camera. I did a few uh, for a minute there. I was directing VR a lot. I think I directed perhaps more VR. At one point, it was claimed that I directed more VR pieces than anyone. I think that lasted about five minutes. But for a while there, I was shooting with it a lot and really excited about it. And for me, I actually started out in theater and and um, so I had a kind of that live and I, and done a lot of theater in the round and really enjoyed that kind of. Um, uh, I did lots of fun um, musicals outdoors growing up in the UK in a college, and it was really fun uh, way of uh, directing fun, um, uh, incredible, talented, amazing people doing just 
awesome fun stuff in summer gardens beautiful evenings in england growing up it was really a divine way to play around with your friends growing up was making these uh, experiences but that kind of theater in the round and live thing was very intuitive um for me and didn't you know so it's a whole different medium when you're actually editing less typically in in vr and so you're sort of um, staging more in the moment. You you are kind of directing and staging and rehearsing like live theater. And then you kind of, you know, hide under a tree and say action and this stuff unfolds. And you typically don't edit because edits are so jarring in VR. Um, and uh, so it's a whole different medium, essentially. And the the confusing thing is that the sort of screen resolution quality the video kind of technology is similar but actually it's a completely different kind of experiential medium in some yeah, ways yeah. right so so if you have to, if you imagine just like a white picket fence and you say like a mouse is approaching the fence versus a tractor is approaching the fence and now imagine the distance from the fence to the mouse and the distance from the fence to the tractor even though the sentence is exactly the same you're gonna have um <clears throat> you imagine the mouse is closer right Mm -hmm. Did I you probably both did. Everyone does. Um, so, so language has its own kind of spatial inferences in it, right? Like there was the same sentence structure, but because of the objects in wait, it. Wait, wait, say that again. I, I missed it. So imagine a mouse approaching a white picket fence. Yeah. And just visualize it. And now imagine a tractor approaching a white picket fence. The tractor is a bit farther. Mm. Yeah. That's how everyone imagines it. Because there's, there's spatial properties imbued within the objects themselves, mm, right? Mm -mm. So... Um, I was interviewing uh, someone about elegance once, and I was trying. I was asking them the about the way that they imagined a ballerina, who they had used as the example of the most elegant form of of kind of aesthetic movement. And the answer, which I find so beautiful, this guy was the design one of the designers at the New York Times, uh, said that a ballerina is only elegant at the distance it is meant to be viewed. Too close, too far. If you if you zoom in on the pores of sweat. It's not elegant anymore. If you're too far away, you can't see it. You can't see the human shape. Uh, you're too far away. So there's a there's a there's a range in which the aesthetics happen. And one thing I've always wondered about film, and I've always wondered, I guess, both both as photographers and filmmakers, you guys have to choose the distance at which events are viewed. Mm -hmm. Is that like how do you know the proper distance for an event? Well, I well, think it's filmed at a bunch of different lengths, and then you figure that out in the editing. You process. do, yeah. And you also learn in film school that if you want to do a dramatic moment and you've chosen this wide shot because you thought the bridge in the background was really cool, then you get back to the editing room and you can't see the woman's face, you're going to be thinking, oh, I want to know what's going on with her. Um, or, or you might not. You might think this is the perfect moment to not know what's going on in the face and to enjoy in, instead Antonioni style, perhaps focus on the landscape and um, let that be the emotional story. You know, but you you make these choices and you learn language. It's learning a language, right? So I was being kind of prosecutorial there, where I actually had a follow up question. That was my lead in question, Ooh, which okay. is to say. Then how do you deal with in VR just having a stationary camera and the events unfolding around? Well, a you single choose object? where you put the camera yeah. and you choose the you people and stuff. You're staging yeah. everything, right? You you have choices. Um, you you have different sets of choices because you can't, uh, you know, suddenly zip the camera from the on top of the fence to underneath the fence unless you've got some really special rigging uh, going, um, for you. But, um, so you, you make all those calculations as you always do. One of the, the, my favorite films of all time, I don't even remember what it was called, but it really stuck with me. They took the Lumiere brothers camera, the original, there's some controversy about whether the Lumiere brothers or Thomas Edison invented cinema. I think they invented it about the same time separately, but, um, so they decided these French filmmakers, of course, who were thought the Lumiere brothers were the inventors of cinema. Um, they wanted to give this that original camera to a bunch of contemporary filmmakers and see what they could do under the same constraints that the Lumiere brothers had. So they, they couldn't edit. They could only have three takes that were one minute long and they had to like hand crank the camera. And, uh, and they gave it to like David Lynch and Spike Lee and Eric Romare and like all these amazing like French and American filmmakers and Ital and some Greek and Italian. And um, I think it was 40 different filmmakers. And with the knowledge that we had today, I think David Lynch was the most creative. He built 
sets all around him in 360 degrees. And then he would turn the camera and then put a black thing in front of it, pan over, and then uh, keep the scene going in the new place. So he was able to edit without editing. And I thought that was amazingly clever. And, um, and then they would ask each of the filmmakers, like, why do you make movies? And of course, 99% had uh, really pretentious answers about the depth of like truth that they were looking for and all this stuff. And only Eric Romero, I think, gave the honest answer, which was, I just want people to love me. And uh, <laughs> so I now want to turn the question to you. I guess you've already answered it somewhat, but why do you make movies? It's not for people to love me, although, you know, I don't complain if they do, but um, <laughs> uh, clearly, but... Um, uh, no, it is. I have a real, you know, my meaning making machine has always been an overdrive. I'm, I'm very curious and um, I also need a job. So I do need, uh, I am someone who needs to work for money. Um, so I've got to do something to pay the rent. Um, and I feel incredibly fortunate um, that I get to ask interesting people all the questions that I think are gonna give the audience the most interesting um, experience. And uh, I love just understanding something and then communicating it. And when you communicate it, um, you have to um, understand it. And that actually is a real challenge, you know, uh, as someone like me who just really loves, um, I don't cut myself any slack at all in terms of the standards to which I hold myself kind of intellectually or kind of insightly or something like that. So I, I, I want to really understand something um, or know that I don't and get somebody else in who does. But, um, and to communicate that and to really have this experience of awe and curiosity and what's really going on here. And I have this relationship with the world. I am just profoundly in awe of pretty much anything when you get into it. And to be able to discover that anew and understand some more things about the world. And do you have a time that you think you did this most successfully if somebody wanted to go out and seek your workout? If there was, is there one that you feel like came out the best? It's obviously like, you know, choosing between your children, isn't it? I have, I think people could if they really wanted to, though. They probably I can, do yeah, yeah. No, child. I can. I, a film that I really, um, is, all my films sort of sound terrible. But the film that I love, um, there's a there's a couple that are easy recommends of the feature length ones. Um, my film, The Crash Reel, which seems like a terrible premise, is a snowboarder who crashes. I mean, really, who would want to watch this? film especially if you're not into snowboarding um but it's not about that at all it's really about life and how people are and um what life does to you and how you respond and so that's called the crash reel and then there's another film called wasteland which um has won a tremendous amount of awards and is very um beautiful film because of the beautiful people in it um, my first film I'm very fond of, um, Devil's Playground, about Amish young people. Um, I'm still obsessed with the Amish. Um, and I've made some short ones, too, that I'm very fond of. One about David Hockney that's very short. Or one about um, uh, called The Lion's Mouth Opens, about a young woman who's amazing, called Mariana. Um, and so all kinds of things. But back to the other thing about film that I love is that it's just all these medium, right? So it's music and it's photography yeah. and it's story and its emotion and its faces and its light and its architecture and its um it's just um sounds and 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 how we you know you pl in playing with all these things you understand how your brain puts the world together as well and um and your sensory experience of being in the world and so for me that's also really i, I like the, the 360 challenge of that you know communicating the experience of being alive and um so i think that's another reason why this is my medium but i don't your, know it does keep changing your description of the why though could have word for word if you had been a scientist it sounded like what scientists also might say well but i could have been I, I wish i was a scientist too you see um yeah well, about like unpacking, unpacking the world and giving it you know finding the meaning and extracting and understanding how the thing actually works and i mean I, like i could not find a word that would not be descriptive also of a scientist well we're all just here trying to figure out what the fuck is going on you know like why are we here and what is this i yeah. think that if we're just tackling it from different angles right i definitely think there's a the scientist and the documentary filmmaker are looking at the world 
and just trying to understand it. So, but to, just to what, different layers of understanding and so different ways and different then, mechanisms. Like, to what degree do you think of editing and selection and choice as experimentation or selection? So, I mean, the, the only way that scientists perturb the world is by literally perturbing something. And do you think that, I mean, obviously, I'm sure there's like theory about this, but the degree to which the camera changes things, the degree to which your presence changes things. I mean, but do you actually see it as a kind of experimentation? Like here, I have observed a event in nature. It could involve people, but it's effectively in nature in the outside world. And then I'm going to go and put it to camera. But no, that, I, but I, that I, act is uh, perturbation. Perturbation, no. I, I've been thinking a lot about perturbation because I've been talking to a lot of the world's most fascinating and brilliant psychedelic researchers who are perturbing consciousness using psychedelics right. and learning about it. So I think I've been thinking a lot about this. And <clears> let me see if I can actually recall my uh, my thought that I just had, Patrick. No, I don't think that I'm very aware of that that the camera changes everything, the uncertainty principle. I'm not convinced even by the way that things sort of happen when they're not being observed in the universe. I'm I'm not sure that they do i think there's something about how reality gets built out that's really kind of japanese just-in-time manufacturing so that's me but i think that by definition as a documentary filmmaker you are stories uh narrative events the kind that you want to make films about are perturbances right you for something to be interesting dramatically it's not a boring day in the patch of earth where the ants are maybe crawling by sometimes you know you're trying to find those moments where there's a story there's something compelling something is happening that is a perturbance of you know that's what drama is isn't it and so we wouldn't get very far unless my you know unless my snowboarder in the story had a you know dramatic life-changing accident and then various other things unfolded it wouldn't be a very good story no one would watch it and i wouldn't be there challenged in all my craft to think how to tell the story because there wouldn't be a story at all and some people make films like that too, right? But um, but they're rare experiments because once you've watched the Empire State Building for a few minutes, um, you probably don't want to. You're, you're probably nobody's probably going to keep giving you money to make that on the big screen, right? So, like the three act structure of <clears throat> science and experimentation is you do experimental design, where you sit down and you kind of plan things out and you, you you look at your maybe statistical power or calculated or something, then you do the actual experiment and then you have stage three, which is analysis, right? Um, I, I remember going to the Stanley Kubrick retrospective and I saw his kind of timeline for Barry Lyndon and production of Barry Lyndon, the production calendar. Ah, one of my favorite films. And, oh. and he had like, you know, preparatory stuff and then principal photography and then editing. You have post, right? And it just struck me like as the so similar to the three act structure as of what science does. And it was so it was maybe it was difficult for me not to kind of map onto the three stages, the three stages of science. And so the degree to which the storytelling happens in science is both in the experimental design phase, which is where you choose what question you're going to ask and what you want to disprove. And then the data collection, I imagine, is very similar to principal photography, where like you don't know what's going to happen. You can do your best to control as many variables as possible, but like there's individual variation in mice, there's individual variation in actors. Deal with it. And then, but then in post, you do, and it's very similar to data analysis. You go back, and I, I guess one thing is I find, and if you ask most scientists, the deep, deep, platonic joy, like pure joy of science is in that analysis phase when you discover and you have a set of data that is unique that is never before seen that 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 exists only in your hands and that you get to kind of understand it and shape it and do you guys feel i in, love that mm, yeah right? i totally feel that in do fact in post yeah and I, I will always say actually and, I, and I, I don't for different reasons but i always say that the kind of pleasure increases at every stage the kind of stress to creativity ratio actually gets better and better throughout the process and it's a little bit like sunset you know it keeps getting better and better and better till it's all over the kind of process of making a film and that editing phase for me is incredibly joyful and creative and amazing and there's something that you're right about it's not just the creative act of the editing that's very um satisfying uh, and also often your life is a little bit easier because you just 
going to an editing room rather than climbing Mount Everest or worrying about money, which are the proceeding and worrying about what you might need. You know, you're actually just putting it all together and seeing it. But there's also something you're right about. You're seeing results. It's not just the creative act. You're also getting to watch back and it kind of culminates the last act uh, you know the last sort of act is often the sound mix where you throw the film up on the big screen and in a fantastic sound studio and you start putting all the sound effects and mixing all the music gorgeously and seamlessly and taking out all the like cruddy bits and you just sort of see what you've done and it is you see the signal and the noise kind of um you see the signal right which are good an experiment with some serious results has it gives you a signal that's like you said never before seen and I even had a directing teacher that really influenced me um, tremendously was a wonderful I think he's from Lithuania a former Soviet Union probably Lithuania um, director called Boris Fruman who was quite famous at um, NYU for his sort of sloganeering way of teaching but he'd always say um uh, the, the the kind of goal for your uh, homework assignments, uh, which were tremendously uh, helpful in building my craft, were you want he wanted you to to create images that were strange, lyrical, never before seen, you know, as opposed to bad, boring, generic. Bad, boring, generic was what you did not want your images to be, but you wanted to find images that were strange, lyrical, never before seen, and. Um, and that never before seen thing, I think. So I think this is a great analogy I've never thought of before, science and filmmaking. And if you're a pure and careful scientist in that kind of data analysis stage, the, the your internal thoughts and your expectations and hypotheses going in all the way from the beginning, all the way from experimental design, influence the kinds of questions you're allowed to ask in the data analysis. If you switch it up, if you start an experiment, things go differently than you thought they would, and then you switch in post-production and start to ask different questions about the world, you've, you, you need to correct for that statistically. You actually have to embed and keep track of your subjective thoughts along the way about what you thought you were studying. Is there any analog to that in film and documentary or, or feature in the sense that like, I imagine there's a lot of kind of dynamic change along the way as the as the world unfolds in front of you. But do you hold on to the, uh, that? Is it, is it, is it a danger? Is it a curse or is it valuable to hold on to those initial kind of expectations and thoughts about what you thought this project was going to be? It's a really good question. Mm. Sometimes people include that, you know, the filmmaker's narration is part of the journey and something, something I've been actually experimenting with that with, uh, couple of things I'm working on right now, including your own narrative, which is a nice, honest, it's an interesting way of doing things, and I'm kind of playing with it. Um, other times I think that documentary filmmakers, my colleagues, tend to be an incredibly um, hardworking, sincere, um, well-intentioned, thorough, um, just incredibly reputable bunch, but it's actually amazing what low standards we would be held to and what you could get away with if you wanted to in terms of um, insincere, dishonest um, denial of that. You could be a very bad scientist as a documentary filmmaker and perhaps there are some out there or kind of um, conspiracy films and things like this that are very sort of bad actors but for the most part I think um, filmmakers hold themselves to tremendously high standards um, despite actually being held to very little account <laughs> I think I don't know if that answers that okay I think we're gonna we had our first awkward silence and we're almost an hour in <laughs> we didn't even you probably have to go to work I do <laughs> Uh, we, I can do this, work we can do this tomorrow morning. We should do more. I think, yeah, I, I'm I'm actually kind of disillusioned with the, I, I used to be very special to be the one documenting. I'm sure you remember this, like before the advent of everybody being a filmmaker and everyone having a camera and everyone documenting the world around themselves almost as a compulsion instead of as a, uh, as a way of interpreting in a positive way, the, the world we have, we're all stuck on these phones, like saying, oh, let me take a picture of my food. Let me take a picture of this. Let me take a picture of that. And, and that's kind of actually pushed me away from documentary filmmaking and more towards th three-dimensional creation of space. Um, and I, do you have any thoughts on the fact that now everyone and their brother yeah, is no, like it's changed. filming it's right. everything all the time? 
and it's kind of annoying or well, and there's an <laughs> overload of content there's more and content now feels like rather than growing up when these you know these rare opportunities to see these great works where even if it was you know one of warhol's like a woman is crying or you're looking at the empire state but we we'd, we'd create so much meaning around these things yeah. or these films you know you mentioned eric romare just now like i'm like oh my god i used to we used to you know i walked around london you know having seen a film or paris and i'd you'd spend a day with your friends discussing this latest or, or just uh, your visit to some kind of um uh, art house theater to catch up on your Eric Roma back catalog or something. We we created so much meaning around it, and now we're saturated, and it feels like it's fighting for your attention rather than us fighting for these opportunities to make meaning and understand the world. And and that, yeah, I, I agree. And and you know, we to that, and that's why I sort of want to hold lightly to the medium and. Um, and not and 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 hold firmly more to the mission of of how to live rather than the actual medium because the me media keeps changing right and um you know we're not making elizabethan drama anymore although shakespeare did so well with that for example whatever you know the world keeps unfolding and changing in our relationship to what is meaningful does and it is um overwhelming that content just feels like it's being with we're in this fire hose of stuff and we don't we don't make meaning when we don't make meaning around it it stops being meaningful right it used to be so special i remember seeing a um early kieslowski movie where like he filmed this little old lady in poland and then she died and then he's showing the footage to like the the son mm. and she says he says oh my god you've you've made my mother immortal and you've made her still alive even though she's dead and the, the, this little grainy black and white image of her walking down this bleak little hill and there was this reverence for the medium that just understandably isn't there anymore you know I mean I, and people are going back to like in a kind of nostalgic way and shooting film again and therefore kind of but it seems a little bit forced to me and anyway, I have this very conflicted relationship to it now because I used to feel like it was just this magical, special thing. And and then I got to be this magical, special guy for like being the one with the camera. Like I used to be the only one in high school that would be taking pictures of everything and I would like yeah, really enjoy going to develop them. And then I got, you know, was the only one with a video camera. And and now that's just, we've lost that in a way. And it's, it's, it's I wonder as well. I wonder about whether we're burned out, whether we're getting old um whether the things have moved on and we've really got to just refresh ourselves and stop looking for you know it's interesting when you think about chris nolan who you know i revere but it's also you know his is he hanging on to things like the you know people who are opera you know what i mean like we, we fund these operas and it feels like a fantastic medium and you know obviously it's fantastic but it's it's moribund you have to prop it up with these government subsidies it's not you know it's rare that kids are like racing off to the opera or maybe that's something we should I don't know it's it's very I have I have these questions too I wonder if I'm burned out I wonder um I feel bad that I don't want to watch films all day every day and I find so many other things interesting and I shouldn't feel bad I feel um that, that I've just moved on I did that when I was young that's what I did I ran around Paris with my periscope and my goal was, and I watched, uh, having spent all day in a sound studio filming for my day job, I'd then go and watch two films a night and three films a day on weekends and obsess about the craft and, and wanting to be a filmmaker. But now that I am, what's a good way to spend my time? And what do I find mm -hmm. more interesting? This conversation, for example, is more interesting to me than watching um, a film i can't watch a movie anymore like very rarely am i able to sit through a whole movie and yet i can listen to a three hour long podcast so it's weird like the it, it doesn't it doesn't seem as if it's a medium that anymore as as i don't know as, as like in touch with the pace of our age and yet somehow these conversations are which seems like counterintuitive because we are in such an add time we've talked about this a bit and sometimes but, films cut through i mean occasionally a film 
is um, I think also the the industry is very creatively constipated. I think documentaries have been much more um, interesting and dynamic. Yes. In in again, sort of um, I, I think it you feel as a documentary filmmaker like you're a failed fiction filmmaker constantly. The industry makes you feel like that. And um, on some level, I am a failed fiction filmmaker because none of my fiction films have ever actually been made, um, despite actually being paid to try and having lots of films that looked like they were going to um, get made and stuff like this. Um, technically, I am sort of a failed fiction filmmaker on one level. But on another level, I have to say that the creativity and the opportunity and the craft and the the, the creative... And it has been, it's, been, it's been fantastic being a documentary filmmaker. I've loved... Um, I've loved it, and I I still love it. It's it's incredible. Yeah, I don't want to end on a note of disillusionment. I just think there's there's no, it's moments to of us. worry. Yeah, I want to I want to be honest about that though, and um, uh, and actually, I don't think we should um be dishonest. I think we should be authentic and say we we have this different relationship. But I don't know if it's burnout or overwhelm or stress or um age or what what it is. But I want to be authentic about. The, the fact that it feels really different than it did in our youth and yeah. um and maybe we'll find our creative edge in different places and that's okay we shouldn't feel bad about that right that's a perfect way to end and it's exactly one hour thank you lucy maybe we'll do this <laughs> again you. i think we could do another hour easily oh yeah see you tomorrow everybody. <laughs>